Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 9, Krum. So we left off last time with the peaceful death of Cardan in 803. As I mentioned, the death of Cardan marked the end of an era. The political chaos of the 8th century was over, and with it, Bulgaria's status as a newcomer to the European stage. While there remained many developments on the way to Bulgaria further establishing itself, the first century and the first era of Bulgarian history had effectively come to an end. Brought back from the brink of death, the Bulgarian state is now poised to strike back. And just in time. Because at this moment, numerous political, military, economic, and personal factors will all come together to mark the beginning of more than a century of Bulgarian expansion. And that century begins with Krum. But before I get to him, You'll recall in the last episode, I mentioned how the reign of the Byzantine Empress Irene led directly to Charlemagne being crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. Well, in the final years of the reign of Cardan, Charlemagne was expanding east. That meant that the Avars, a Turkic federation of tribes living to the north of the Bulgarians, based around the Carpathian Basin, modern Hungary and Transylvania, you can see a map of their territory in the year 800 on the website. So you'll remember that the Avars have been declining for some time in spite of their gradual mixing with the Slavic tribes they ruled, much in the same way that Bulgaria had been doing. But the 1790s brought a major shift in the regional power balance as Charlemagne's consolidation of the Frankish power brought a serious rival straight to the Avars' doorstep. So throughout that decade, the Franks and their allied Croatian Slavic tribes won victory after victory against the Avars, pushing them to the east side of the river Tisa. This meant, this meant that by the beginning of the 9th century, their territory consisted of modern-day Transylvania and modern Romania, as well as a bit of the eastern part of modern Hungary, much smaller than what they had controlled only a few decades earlier. Almost immediately after Krum rose to power, he saw an opportunity he couldn't resist. The Avars were in shambles, and the Franks and Croats had already taken all the territory they desired. In addition, within the Avar Khanate, their federation, were many Bulgarians who had settled there after the breakup of old Great Bulgaria in the 7th century. It was an irresistible target for a new Khan eager to prove himself. So, in a series of lightning campaigns, Krum effectively ended 237 years of Avar domination of a huge swath of Eastern Europe. In doing so, Krum nearly doubled the size of Bulgaria's territory and brought it to a common border with the Franks along the Danube. Having once lived in the city, it's amazing to think that at this moment, Bulgarian control included the Pest side of Budapest. However, the ease of this expansion 
is going to stand in stark contrast with the difficulty in holding on to this vast new tract of territory jutting upwards into such a volatile part of Europe. But for the moment, Krum had other worries. And you'll recall that the previous decades had seen more and more mixing between the Slavic and Proto-Bulgarian elements within the Bulgarian state. It was vitally important to maintain a peaceful coexistence between these groups, as both were absolutely essential for Bulgaria's survival. However, the conquest of the Avars brought many more Proto-Bulgarians and not nearly as many Slavs into the state, shifting the power balance between these two groups. Krum addressed this by subordinating the Pannonian Bulgars, the Bulgarians who had just entered the country, as well as further encouraging development of the Slavs, effectively trying to balance them. Thus, Krum, in what must have been a very difficult bit of political maneuvering, turned what could have been a disastrous change into one which actually made the Bulgaria stronger. While Krum is understandably famous for his military exploits, I think that this move alone proves he should be equally famous for his political skills. So you may have noticed something strange going on here. Bulgaria went to war with someone besides the Byzantines. Well, if you've been paying attention, you'll know two things. First, that's amazing. Second, that can't last long. You'd be right on both accounts. After the death of the Empress Irene, one of the organizers of that death, the finance minister Nikophoros, was crowned Nikophoros I in 802. Now, as you may have guessed, Nikophoros was neither a fan of Irene nor her policies. Irene had wanted peace with Bulgaria. Nikophoros disagreed. So, in 807, war broke out yet again between Byzantium and Bulgaria. At this point, I think it could be interesting to tally the number of distinct wars which have occurred between Byzantium and Bulgaria. Perhaps one of you want to take on that as a little math project. But anyways, Nikephoros' campaign did not go well. A plot against the emperor amongst his own troops forced him to turn back before he even reached Bulgaria. It was not a good start. The next year, the Bulgarians raided along the Struma River, surprising a Byzantine force just at the end of the campaign season, and managed to both annihilate them and grab 1,100 pounds of gold. The following year, 809, Bulgarian forces finally took the city of Serdica, modern Sofia, today the capital of Bulgaria. The city had strong walls, artist renderings of which can be viewed today in the Sofia Archaeological Museum and Metro. It's unclear actually how Krum managed to breach them. This was a very serious Byzantine fortress. And this was, in that sense, not just the loss of any city. Serdica was an important city in the empire, sitting as it does today on many trade routes which traverse the Balkans. In addition, the city was an integral part of the Byzantine Empire's system of border fortifications. So, interestingly, Krum did not occupy the city, but rather massacred its soldiers and destroyed its fortifications so the Byzantines could no longer use it as a border fortress. Nikophoros was furious and left Constantinople at the head of a full imperial army the moment he heard the news. But instead of marching to confront Krum, he wisely headed for the far bigger prize, Pliska. The Bulgarian capital was virtually undefended with Krum all the way in the west. 
Nicophorus claims that he plundered the city, although Theophanes thinks this is a lie. Other historians have concluded that it's unlikely Nicophorus would have told a lie when his entire army could have easily shown it to be a deceit, so in all likelihood, Pliska actually was plundered. Remember, if Theophanes doesn't like uh, an emperor, he really doesn't like that emperor, so maybe he's trying to take away some of his glory. Now, I mentioned how important Sertica was, and Nicophorus agreed, and so immediately after his attack on Pliska, he headed towards that ruined city. He remarkably made it to the city without meeting Krum's army, and turned his own army into a labor force to quickly rebuild its fortification. As you can imagine, the quality of the rebuilt walls wasn't so good, uh, but for now, they would have to do the trick. To add to his difficulties, Nicophorus's troops nearly revolted over being forced to work as manual laborers. At this point, remember, Byzantium has a professional army. They're not used to being thrown into ditches and told to build walls. Now, to make things even worse for the emperor, some of his officers who had been in charge of the garrison at Sertica, but escaped, asked for his forgiveness. But he was not exactly in a forgiving mood, and therefore forced them to desert to Krum. In this way, the Bulgarians suddenly had access to, among many able commanders, a famous military engineer named Eumantheus, who went about teaching the Bulgarians all the latest and greatest techniques of the age. In the wider picture, it was clear to the Byzantines that their defensive strategy in the Balkans was looking weak and needed improvements. So Nicophorus decided to further settle the border region with loyal Anatolian peasants, the backbone of Byzantium. He questioned the loyalty of the local Slavic population and believed that this move would significantly reinforce the border. However, this policy mostly served to greatly anger those Slavs and didn't significantly contribute to the long-term strength of the border defenses. So, ultimately, uh, Nikophoros had offense, not defense, at the front of his mind. So, in the end, his failed defensive measures didn't make a huge difference. He felt that he had suffered far too many insults at the hands of this new Khan, and that he was absolutely determined to finally issue a killing blow. So the Byzantines set about making preparations as never before. With the eastern frontier secure, the resources of the entire empire were put towards these preparations. In May of 811, a massive force left the imperial capital with the emperor and his son at its head. They couldn't have imagined what was waiting for them. Initially, things seemed to be going amazingly well. Krum was not prepared to meet such a massive force, and therefore was forced to leave Pliska to be ravaged. The Byzantines easily took the city with its token garrison and essentially leveled it to the ground. Nikophoros wanted to make a new Byzantine city on its ashes and name it after himself. Still, fortunately for us, the descriptions of those events, found relatively recently, provide some excellent descriptions of the palaces that the Byzantines found in Pliska. You'll remember we don't have a lot of descriptions of what Pliska looked like, a lot of uh, evidence of really the physical culture of Bulgarians in this period. So these sources describe a massive residence full of terraces. Uh, but unfortunately, like most of the palace and most of the city, it was made of wood and it burned very easily when it was set alight by the Byzantines thus, again, destroying a lot of the evidence of the culture of the First Bulgarian Empire. Krum was desperate, 
He had sent peace envoys before Pliska was burned, and they had been turned away. Now, with his capital ruined, he tried again, only to be rejected yet again. In retrospect, this will prove a blessing in disguise. The Byzantine army marched west from the burning embers of Pliska, searching out Krum's army to destroy it. You will recall me explaining at the end of the last episode that Bulgaria was finally coming back from the brink of destruction. So, I guess to be a bit more accurate, this was perhaps the true low point. But it wouldn't last long. Somehow, nearly at the height of his victories against Krum and the Bulgarians, Nikoforos began to slip. Overconfidence had caused him not to send out scouts to plan his army's movements. As a result, he found himself in a narrow mountain pass. Perhaps realizing his grave mistake, he retired to his tent and refused to leave or give any orders. The Byzantines were in a dangerous position and completely paralyzed. Even the son of the emperor couldn't reason with him. Krum, meanwhile, was positioned in the mountains and preparing to throw everything he had against the Byzantines. He armed everyone he could, women included, and demonstrated the importance of Bulgaria's improving relations with the Slavs in and outside the region by, con- by recruiting additional soldiers from them. And so, just as the Byzantines realized just how dangerous their position was, they also realized that the roads in front of them and behind them had been blockaded by wooden barricades thrown up by the Bulgarians. The emperor himself summed up the terror in a moment when he said, quote, Even if we had wings, we could not have escaped our peril. End quote. And so, just south of the modern town of Verbitsa, in the Balkan Mountains, the Byzantines were set upon and slaughtered almost to a man. I will let Theophanes describe what happened. Quote, An infinite number of soldiers, so that the flower of Christendom was destroyed. All the arms were lost, as were the imperial utensils. May not Christians experience another time the ugly events of that day, from which no lamentation is adequate. Krumos cut off the head of Nikephoros and for several days hung it on a pole so as to exhibit to the tribes that came before him and to dishonor us. After that, he bared the skull, reveted it on the outside with silver, and in his pride made the chieftains of the Sclavanians drink from it. When so many widows and orphans were left on that day, in the midst of such uncontrollable weeping, the slaying of Nikephoros appeared to many persons as a consolation. End quote. In case you hadn't noticed, Theophanes was not a fan of Nikephoros. Really, a tough guy to please. So, the greatest army the Byzantines had ever thrown against the Bulgarians was lost. The emperor was dead and shamed. The emperor's son had escaped only to die of his wounds shortly after. It was one of the greatest military defeats in Byzantine history, and it changed the situation between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines literally overnight. A Serbian patriarch traveling in the area in the 17th century found a memorial to a Byzantine soldier slain at the battle still standing. The Ottomans, in some strange act of solidarity, had placed a turban on the tomb. Thus, the ghosts of this disaster lived on for hundreds of years after and the Byzantines never forgot. 
Steve Runciman describes the after-effects well, quote, The news of the disaster came as an appalling shock to the whole imperial world. Never since the days of Valence on the field of Adrianople had an emperor fallen in battle. It was a stupendous blow to the imperial prestige, to the legend of the emperor's sacrosanctity, so carefully fostered to impress the barbarians. Moreover, the Visigoths that slew Valens had been mere nomads, destined soon to pass away to other lands. The Bulgars were barbarians settled at the gate, and determined, more so now than ever, to remain there. The Empire would never live down and forget its shame, and the Bulgars would ever be heartened by the moment of their triumph. End quote. Once Nikephoros' son died of his wounds, his brother-in-law Michael Rangabe was crowned emperor. One can only imagine the atmosphere of such a coronation, the sense of dread. For within one year the army of Krum was on the march with nothing standing in its way. In effect, all the campaigns of the previous hundred years in which the Byzantines had fought tooth and nail to weaken the new Bulgarian state had been undone. Krum was now firmly on his throne, unchallenged and exalted by his people. So in 812, Krum set out to con continue what he had begun at Serdica, the dismantling of the Byzantine border fortresses. He now set out to the opposite end of the border, to the attack the fortress of Develtus, at the most inland point of the Gulf of Borgas. Taking that fortress both blocked the Byzantine road along the seacoast, which you'll remember was used many times in the past to transport armies, as well as in effect anchoring the Bulgarian position in the east. The new emperor set out to stop him with what forces he could muster, but had to turn back because of a mutiny. He never even reached Bulgarian territory. A terror was spreading throughout the entire Byzantine frontier. People were abandoning cities and fortresses from Macedonia to the Black Sea. Great fortresses, which had so recently been repaired at great expense, were being abandoned. But Krum did not leap at his chance. As he had shown with his meticulous strategy of taking border fortifications one at a time, he was not one to rush into a situation headlong. So, rather surprisingly, he actually appealed to the Byzantines for peace. More specifically, Krum wanted to return to the peace treaty of 716 with some modifications. The envoy, he said, also represents the first important figure in Bulgarian history with a 100% Slavic name, further showing the advances the Slavs were making within Bulgaria. The biggest issue for the Byzantines was that Krum demanded the return of Bulgarian deserters. Doing this would significantly undermine a key element of Byzantine diplomacy the ability to offer protection to anyone who would support them against their native country. The emperor felt he just could not accept the peace. To him, this diplomatic price was too high. Krum had warned that he would attack the vital city of Masumbria, modern Nesever, on the Black Sea coast, if peace was not accepted. So in October, he arrived at the city gates in full force. Now normally, the Bulgarians would have had absolutely no chance in taking Masumbria. The wealthy port city and fortress was connected to the mainland only by a narrow isthmus. So without a navy, the Bulgarians would have normally been helpless in stopping the Byzantines from reinforcing the garrison. But these were not normal times. The Byzantines 
made next to no effort to help the garrison, and the city fell. I highly recommend those who can to visit the modern city of Nesever, as that narrow isthmus is still there, and the city is full to the brim with beautiful Byzantine ruins. I'll post a few photos I've taken on the website. Now, Krum stole away the wealth of Mesambria, including many jugs of the famous Greek fire. Then, as per his usual strategy, he dismantled the fortress and left the city naked. The Emperor Michael was not of the opinion that he had to retaliate against this insult. Receiving word that Krum was preparing to attack Thrace, he mustered yet another army. But this time, his European and Anatolian troops were decomposing the Balkan mountains, so he had to recruit his force primarily from his far eastern provinces. So Michael set off from Constantinople in the heat of the summer, but he was no great commander. He wasted valuable time and made no attempts to retake or reinforce his lost fortresses. Eventually the two armies met and waited to see who would engage in battle first. For fifteen days they waited as the Byzantine troops came more, became more and more angry over being so far away from their homes for so long. Still they waited until the emperor finally gave permission for his left wing to begin the assault. Now the Byzantines outnumbered the Bulgarians by around ten to one and should have been able to easily defeat them in a simple open battle. But morale has a way of eroding even the greatest advantages until they are dust. So as the Byzantine left wing was making great advances on the Bulgarian troops, the eastern troops and the rest of the army began to flee. What exactly prompted this, we don't know for sure, but we imagine their low morale played a vital part. Krum was astonished at what he was seeing and initially believed it was a trap. The so recently victorious left wing was defeated and the remainder of the army was pursued all the way back to the capital. It was another disaster. Now, you may have noticed something strange about this battle. First, why would the Bulgarians have engaged the Byzantines in open battle, something they had always avoided in the past, particularly when so badly and hopelessly outnumbered? Now, it's believed by some that treachery was involved, and that Krum was possibly working with the general of the eastern troops who fled so inexplicably, Leo the Armenian. Because it was Leo who gained the most, as this disaster prompted Michael to abdicate and make Leo, Leo V, Emperor of Byzantium. But in the meantime, Krum was marching through defenseless Thrace. His brother laid siege to the vital city of Adrianople, while Krum himself went straight for the real prize, Constantinople. In July, just weeks after his victory, his army arrived at the walls of the great city. But, as you'll no doubt remember, taking Constantinople was nearly impossible in any circumstance. Seeing the massive triple walls, Krum knew this immediately. So he inaugurated an intimidation campaign in which he demonstrated his power by sacrificing animals, being adored by his troops, setting massive fires and performing other pagan ceremonies in front of the population standing and watching from their walls. At this point, Krum demanded a peace which would have included a symbolic recognition of his own triumph. But Leo V was having none of it. So Krum fortified his position and raided the suburbs of Constantinople. After a few days, he again demanded peace along with a huge amount of treasure. 
Leo responded by suggesting that the two leaders should meet outside the walls on the shores of the Golden Horn. Krum agreed and set out with a few unarmed advisors and an interpreter. The two men met and commenced their negotiations, but at some moment several Byzantine soldiers leapt out and attacked the small Bulgarian party. It had been a trap. Krum's men, including his treasurer and a Byzantine deserter, were killed. But Krum managed to escape on his horse, obtaining only minor injuries. The fury of the Bulgarians at this treacherous act was to know no bounds. They set about burning, stealing, and destroying the innumerable towns, villas, and palaces which surrounded the walls of the city. The decorations and treasures of the imperial palace at St. Mamas were taken off and hauled back to Pliska to adorn Krum's palace. Now, Krum knew there was no way he could breach the walls of the city, so he headed back through Thrace, leading, leaving a trail of utter destruction in his wake. He returned to Adrianople, where his brother had maintained the siege. But Krum now had great engines, siege engines. And, in light of those engines and the starvation and desperation of the people, the garrison finally surrendered. The entire population, possibly as many as 10,000, were sent to settle the area north of the Danube. The city, one of the other great cities of the Byzantine world, was destroyed. By now things had changed in Constantinople, and Leo was begging for peace. But Krum would have none of it. Leo, though, was a determined man, and so he actually set out with yet another army, moving up the Black Sea coast with no intention of facing Krum, but rather seeking to retake Masambria. Somewhere near that ruined city, Leo met a small detachment of Bulgarian troops. Realizing that the area was so devastated in the recent fighting that the Bulgarians would have limited supplies while he was amply resupplied by ship, Leo constructed a clever strategy. He took a small number of hand-picked troops to the top of a nearby hill to hide away from his army. The army itself initially panicked at the disappearance of their emperor. Seeing this, the Bulgarians decided it was perfect time to attack. However, just in time, Leo reassured his troops of his position and strengthened their resolve just as the Bulgarians came. Then Leo swept down from the hill and came at the attackers from the rear, routing them. It was a shameful defeat for the Bulgarians and allowed Leo to devastate the Bulgarian countryside for a time but it did little for him in the long run. For that winter, an especially mild one, Krum descended into Thrace with 30,000 soldiers and sacked the city of Arcadiopolis, modern Lulaburgas, probably not pronouncing that correctly, in Turkey. The Byzantines did nothing and allowed him to return to Bulgaria with 50,000 captives and immense treasure. But now he was preparing something far worse for the Byzantines. According to an anonymous author whose writings were discovered in the Vatican archives, Krum gathered an army from his entire empire, from Slavs to Avars. He used his people's newly captured expertise in engineering to construct massive siege engines to challenge the walls of Constantinople. Constantinople and Leo were terrified and set about building new walls and preparing the city for a great siege. Leo even sought an audience with the Franks, the newly created Holy Roman Emperor, to see if they would attack the Bulgarians on their new common border, but was met with no interest. But just at that moment, 
Just when Krum's reign seemed to be reaching its crescendo, the Khan died of a stroke. He was 814. He had reigned for just 11 short years, and all of Constantinople breathed a sigh of relief and thanked their god. Krum had truly brought Bulgaria into a new age, both militarily and in terms of its internal administration. By uniting with the Bulgars previously under Avar rule, as well as by bringing so many new settlers into Bulgarian lands, Krum injected new vitality into the state. The armies had men, and their coffers had taxes. While he did not take any significant Byzantine land, he devastated their border fortifications as well as their confidence. He killed two emperors and brought about the downfall of a third. Had circumstances been different, he may have even brought about the capture of Constantinople itself, significantly altering world history. Runciman sums it up well. Quote, Bulgaria, the dying state of a half-century before, was now the greatest military power in Eastern Europe. End quote. But in a new development for this podcast, we actually also know a bit about how Krum ran his country internally. He issued a new law code inspired, according to a 10th century source, by conversations with the Avars about what had destroyed their empire. So, the law code tackled several things. The first was lawsuits. In an attempt to prevent frivolous suits, all accusers were required to be thoroughly questioned about their accusations prior to a trial commencing. If it was believed that the accuser was fabricating his claims, he was executed. So don't try anything funny, guys. Now, the code also instituted harsh penalties for stealing and remarkably had all the vines in Bulgaria torn from the ground. Krum believed drunkenness would weaken the state and wanted to have none of it. Finally, it required men of means to contribute to the well-being of the poor. All in all, it was an interesting mix of harsh law and order and social safety net programs. Now, Finally, many authors point to small indications in the sources and claim that Krum heavily favored the Slavs to increase their position within society. I talked a bit earlier about this balancing. However, after I agree with uh, John Van Antwerp's analysis that he likely allowed the Slavs to continue their upward rise within the state. But in either case, the mixing of the Slavs and Proto-Bulgarians was steadily taking place. So in total, we see Bulgaria becoming more multi-ethnic, more centralized, and more confident. Next time, we're going to cover the reign of Krum's son, Omartag, the Builder. He will see Bulgaria turn inwards, in peace with the Byzantines. So for those of you less interested in military matters, you should especially enjoy the next episode. This podcast is produced by Martin Cristo. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing a review on iTunes, and checking out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that will come along with each episode. For this episode, we have several useful maps and some pictures I mentioned of modern Nesebar and its Byzantine uh, fortifications and churches and things. Also, as always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It makes a huge difference for us and gets us all extra excited every time it happens. So until next time, Uspech, or in English, good luck.